Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Please open your Bibles to the second chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2, I'm aware that we were in chapter 6 last week and we tend to study verse by verse, which leads to chapter by chapter, but uh, we need to go back to chapter 2 because I told you last week we had to finish up with chapter 6, but before the end of chapter 6 makes any sense, you have to know the concept of chapter 2. So let's read the first uh, 21 verses of Joshua 2. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and when you and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Zion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And so the men said to her, Our life for yours, if we do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that he will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless... When we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be as on his own head. We shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on it. And if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which we have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she went, she sent them away and they departed and she 
tied the scarlet cord in the window. May the Lord add his blessing in the reading and hearing of his word. Now, there are three aspects of this story that I want us to consider today. The first is Rahab's risk. After all, she risked her life to save these two spies. There's Rahab's reasons. She gives the reasons why she was willing to risk her life. And then there's Rahab's recompense, what she got in return for risking her life. The first seven verses have to do with her risk. She's introduced as Rahab the harlot. She was a resident of Jericho, which was an exceeding wicked city, and she was involved in a vocation that put her, even as an outsider, even in a wicked city. She was described, as I said, as a harlot. There are those commentators who have sought to soften this a little bit that have described her as an innkeeper or a businesswoman. Well, the Bible says in both Testaments that she was a prostitute. Her plan was to hide them on the roof of her house. In the ancient world, most houses were built with a flat roof. It was very functional. They could store things on the roof away from predators, uh, predatory animals and, and thieves. And also they could go up in the heat of the day and find some relief from the breeze. Remember the Apostle Peter when he was staying in the village of Joppa, went up upon the flat roof to take his afternoon siesta. She hid them under flax. She obviously uh, was more than a prostitute. She, she was, in fact, a very industrious and intelligent woman. Obviously, she was a quick thinker, quick under pressure. As the king's guards came and interrogated her, she came up with a plan on the spur of the moment to save these men's life. We can question her ethics if you really want to split hairs because she did tell a lie that these men uh, had left when they were still there. And yet the Bible says she's a blessed woman. Now, I said that this was a risky thing that Rahab did. Obviously so. She certainly would have been killed or at least imprisoned for aiding and abetting the enemies of Jericho. So what, made it, what motivated her? Why did she do it? Well, let's uh, let her answer that question in her own words. Look at verse 8. She says, uh, after they said, before they lay down, that is, to go to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. She's saying, I have heard about your God. I have heard that in some supernatural way. And then she begins to describe the things she's heard, how God caused the Red Sea to open up after they left Egypt and they crossed on dry land and he closed up the sea and drowned the, the pursuing armies of Pharaoh. How he led them to victory over their enemies in the wilderness. And so what she's doing is she's declaring what she's heard. And she's also declaring that she believes it. Well, the Bible says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now she didn't have the full canon of scripture as we do, but she had heard the testimony of who God is and what he's like and she believed it. Now we have a word for believing what you hear about God and it's called faith. This was a woman of faith. She is professing her faith in God. Unless you think I'm stretching that, look at verse 11. She goes on and she says, when we heard it, that is what your God is like, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She is professing her belief that the God that Israel serve is the true God. Now you have to understand, Jericho was a religious place. It was a center of pagan worship, particularly the worship of the moon god. 
And then when you think about Canaan writ large, it was a religious place. They had all sorts of pagan gods and deities that uh, they ritualistically worshiped. But here's the thing about the gods, a little g of Canaan, they were territorial. They were understood to be geographically contained. That is, there were the gods of the hills, there were the gods of the lowlands, there were the gods of the seas, and there were the gods of the plateaus, god of sun, god of moon, on and on it goes. And yet she is declaring the God you serve, he is Lord of all. That is a fundamental difference in the way that the Hebrews understood God and the way the Canaanites did. And so she is, I take it, professing her faith in this God. Now, she wanted to be on the right side of that God. She feared him. Remember we said a couple weeks ago that Joshua asked the captain of the Lord's angelic army, are you for us or for our enemies? And his answer was what? Neither. It was the wrong question. And the question we ask today, is the Lord on our side, is the wrong question. The question is, are we on God's side? Rahab wanted to be on God's side. That's why she hid the spies. That's why she risked her life. But there was a reward for that. Look at verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. Hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterwards, you may go on your way. And so she understood how the king's army and his men worked. She'd seen it all before. So they're pursuing these spies. And she said, well, they left right as the gates were closing at dusk dark last night. If you go now, you can catch them. And so they assumed they would beat a hasty retreat back to camp. And the Israelites, remember, were, were camped out just this side of the Jordan River. And so they said, we'll go towards the Jordan River and we'll catch them before they get back to camp. And so they pursued them. She says, they'll be gone for three days and uh, you go the opposite direction. You go to the hill country and hide out there. And after three days when they're back here and have given up, then the coast will be clear for you to go back and, and join uh, your army. And, and that's what they do. But they had worked out a deal in the meantime. The deal was this. When you come, and I know you're coming to destroy this city, don't forget about me. Don't forget the kindness that I showed you, but not only me, my whole family. And so they worked out a deal where she would gather her father and all of her siblings and their families into this one place, and she was to put a scarlet cord, a red rope that she had used to let these men down from the walled city, and that would be a signal to all the army of Israel to leave that one house alone. That was hands off, don't do any harm to anyone in this house. And there's a great principle of scripture at play here, and that is this, the Lord is merciful. Even when he's about to bring judgment on this city, which he surely was. Remember, this city had already been scheduled for utter destruction. The walls were going to be knocked down flat. All the wealth was going to be confiscated and put in the treasure house of the Lord. And every person from the youngest to the oldest was to be put to death. And yet, in the middle of that, the Lord is merciful. He chose one family, a remnant, upon which to give mercy because of their faith. Now, the Bible is full of examples of this, isn't it? The one that readily comes to my mind is the story of Noah. Remember, God was going to destroy the whole world with a flood because of the sinfulness of men. 
And yet he preserved for himself one family, a remnant of faithful people. Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their families were put away in this ark and they were shielded from the wrath of God. And they reestablished humanity on earth. I'm thinking of Abraham's nephew Lot, who had moved into the city of Sodom and their sins came up to the notice of the Lord. And he came and met with Abraham and told him what he was about to do. He was going to thoroughly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham began to negotiate. He interceded. And he knew his nephew Lot lived there. And he said, what if you find 50 righteous men? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he says, I won't. If I find 50 righteous men, there weren't 50 righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah. He kept negotiating the number down and they couldn't even find 10 righteous men. And, and the only family that had faith there was, was Lot and his faith was sketchy at best. And so they go in and they take Lot and his family members out and his wife turns back and turns to a pillar of salt and Lot and his two daughters alone survive. But God is merciful. Here's another example of that. Of all of the inhabitants of Jericho, we don't know how many, but it was a large city. Only Rahab and her extended family were saved. So, so the question is, did Joshua keep the promises that the spies made to Rahab? Well, I told you last week we'd finish up chapter 6. I want to be true to my word. Let's turn there now. Joshua 6 verse 21. You remember where we left it last week? They'd marched around the city 13 times in total. One time a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day. When they made the 13th circuit, the priest blew the seven horns. The people shouted. The walls fell down flat. Here's what happened next, verse 21. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all of her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However... Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so the question, did Joshua honor the promise that the spies made? Absolutely. To the letter, he spared not only Rahab, but her entire household. Now then, that's a great story. Seems like I say that every week. Well, that's a great story. It is. Love the book of Joshua, but it's a true story. But the story doesn't end there. Remember I told you that Rahab is mentioned in both the New and the Old Testament. And, and one of the places that we find her is the same place we found about Jericho last week in Hebrews chapter 11. So let's go back there now. In Hebrews chapter 11, remember we said this is the hall of fame of faith. And here the author of Hebrews is talking about the great men and women of the Old Testament, and the thing that is the common denominator of all of them is their faith was in God. And so there are two women listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. One is not surprising at all. It's Sarah, 
we would expect the matriarch of the nation of Israel to find her name in the Hall of Fame of Faith. The second one is much more surprising. It is Rahab. Well, let's begin in verse 30 by way of reminder. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's where we finished last week. We said the theme of Joshua 6 is faith, that salvation is by faith. That's why God had them walk in silence. That's why he didn't have them attack. That's why he just had them shout just to see the walls come down. It's because he wanted them to know as they began taking the land that it did not depend upon their resources, did not depend on their weapons, did not depend upon their military strategy. It depended upon their faith in him. And right after he describes the destruction of Jericho, he's reminded to say, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. It's a reminder that Rahab, like all saved people, was saved by faith. And friends, let me remind us all of something. Our God delights in redeeming the lost. I think too often we think of God as giving out mercy and grace begrudgingly. Kind of like one of our children who won't do something unless they have no other choice. Friendly stranger gives them a treat or grandparent gives them some money. What do you ask your child? What do you say? And they bite their lip. Come on, what do you say? Daddy's going to take the money. Thank you. They only say it because they're forced to. And a lot of people have that's the idea of God's mercy. He doesn't want to give mercy. He wants to give wrath. But if he doesn't have any other options, then he might give out some mercy. No. Our God delights in showing mercy. Maybe there's someone here who believes the gospel is only for nice people. People with a sordid past need not apply the gospel, you may think, is only for people who don't have a legal record that they drag around with them from job to job and city to city. Let me tell you, based on the Word of God, Jesus died to save sinners. Jesus told His apostles that the well don't need a physician, but the sick. Paul told Timothy that Jesus died to save sinners among whom I am chief. Speaking of himself. Paul thought of himself as the foulest of sinners. With good reason. I take it every time Paul stood up to preach or to give testimony, he remembered holding the coats of those men who stoned Stephen to death. He remembered persecuting the Lord's church. He remembered that encounter on the road to Damascus where the Lord Jesus accused him of persecuting him. But Paul's not the only sinner in the Bible. This Abraham, who's listed here as the father of all those who have faith, he was a great man of faith. He was also a liar. We see him doing that very thing more than once in the book of Genesis. How about Moses? Surely the man that God used to write the first five books of the Bible was an upright citizen. Not so much. He was a murderer. In fact, he was a fugitive from justice, hiding out in the wilderness when God spoke to him through the burning bush. Well, King David, after all, they wrote songs about King David and sang them around the campfire. Surely 
He must have been a prime example of how we want our children to be, not so much. He was an adulterer and a bloody man, the Bible says. But those are the kinds of people that Jesus died to save. In fact, what scandalized the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees so much is that Jesus hung out with sinners. And one of our favorite stories we tell children is about a little man named Zacchaeus, who was the worst kind of sinner, according to his culture. He was a traitor and a tax collector, which meant he was an extortioner and a thief. And yet Jesus forgave him and ate supper with him. Well, Rahab was a prostitute. And in that time and in most epics of human history, those who are guilty of sexual sin are, are even often outcast among other sinners. But all these people that I've mentioned, the Apostle Paul, Abraham, Moses, David, Zacchaeus, Rahab, they have one thing at least in common. They were all sinners saved by the grace of God. And whatever you think about the people of this church, maybe you think we're, we all grew up in a perfect family. We didn't. Maybe you think we all grew up with silver spoons in our mouth. We did not. Whatever you think about the people of this church, those that are truly born again, I'm talking about, we all have one thing in common. We are sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And anyone who will is welcome to become one of us. If you will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and trust Him alone for salvation. Well, that's not yet the end of Rahab's story. Turn now to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as you may know, is one of the two genealogies that we find in the New Testament, the other in the Gospel of Luke. You rarely hear sermons from the genealogies. One, it's, it's hard to come up with three points in a poem from the genealogies. But we ought to, and we certainly will when we study through the book of Matthew. But the reason we find the genealogies in the New Testament is because of a messianic promise that God gave David. We call it the Davidic covenant. God promised David that there would never cease to be one of his descendants on the throne of Israel. And that's caused a lot of people to doubt the Bible's veracity because they look at history and they say, now wait a second, David was the second king of, of Israel and, and when he died, his son Solomon became king and Israel expanded to its largest geographical footprint under Solomon. But after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became the king and he was so unpopular that the kingdom divided. Many of the tribes refused to follow such a, a wicked and a harsh king, and so they divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and separately, both of those kingdoms were eventually dissolved, and the nation of Israel ceased to exist for a long period of human history. How can we say that God fulfilled His promise that there would be an eternal king on the throne of Israel? Well, He must have been talking about Jesus, right? And that's what the Gospels want us to know. And so they establish through two separate genealogies, one through Joseph, one through Mary, that Jesus had every right to be the King of Israel, the Messiah. And so it begins with Abraham in verse 2. And he says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Amimadab, and Amimadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. We read in Joshua 6 that after Joshua spared the life of Rahab and her family, she was welcomed into Israel and became one of them. In fact, the author of Joshua says at the time that that book was written, she was still alive and living with them. And the people would have known that. In fact, tradition tells us that one of the two spies was this man, Salmon, whom she married. Salmon was the father of Boaz, who, as you know, was the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. Boaz and Ruth get married, and they had a boy named Obed, who had a boy named Jesse, and Jesse had a boy named David. You see how the Lord's sovereignty is at, at work in all of this. This is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four women whose names are mentioned in the genealogies, and all four of them are foreign women, and the Lord used all of them to bring about His eternal redemptive plan. My point is this. Not only does God's grace save sinners through faith, it gives them a reason for living. See, it wasn't just that God forgave Rahab's sin and she went to heaven, and I believe she did. That's wonderful and great, tremendous. But he also used her in her, the rest of her life for his glory. We sang a song a moment ago, which goes like this. Speaking of God, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And the writer of that hymn is describing the work of the atonement. And what we say about the atonement, Christ died on the cross and shed his blood. He sets us free from the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. The wages of sin is death, according to the scripture. He also sets us free from the power of sin. We no longer have to sin. And then he sets us free ultimately in glory from the presence of sin. But there are those who think that's all well and good for those of you who just tell a few white lies. Who haven't been steeped in sin like, like another person. But the psalmist says, the songwriter here says, his blood can make the foulest clean. That's a word we don't often use in our English vernacular anymore. Something is foul. The only thing we know about that is sports. It's out of bounds. But, but in the original language, the word foul was a pejorative term. It meant especially heinous. So read it that way. His blood can make the especially heinous sinner clean. And what did Paul say of his own sin? He was the chief sinner. He was the foulest of sinners. The murderer, the liar, the adulterer, all can be made sin, can be made clean by the blood of Jesus. Here we have a woman in Rahab that was a social outcast, a sinner extraordinaire, and by God's grace, he saved her, he cleansed her, he transformed her, and used her for his own glory. 
He has been doing that since the dawn of time. And he can do it today if you put your faith in him. Repent of sin. Submit to his lordship over your life. It's not too late for anyone here. No one in this room has gone too far to be saved. Grace is greater than our sin. You remember that hymn. The first line is marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there was the blood of the Lamb was spilt. His grace is greater than your sin. He'll never run out of grace. It's infinite. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Did you know that that hymn was written by a lady named Julia H. Johnstone, who was born in the year 1849? That happens to be the same year that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote his most famous novel called The Scarlet Letter. Most of us were forced to read it in high school. If you remember the plot, it was set in Puritan New England in a little village there in the 1600s. And the heroine of the story was a woman named Hester Prynne who was married to a sailor who had been gone a long time and presumed dead at sea. A year or so after the man disappeared, she came up pregnant. Obviously it was out of wedlock while her husband was gone, presumed dead. She was ostracized by the townspeople. She was brought up on charges of adultery. Her sentence was that they put her upon a gallows platform in the town square for three days so that everyone could come by and belittle her. At the end of three days, she was brought down from the platform and forced to sew a letter upon every piece of garment she had, which was the letter A, which obviously stood for adulterer. And she was to wear that every day of her life for the rest of her life. Wherever she went, she tried to do business with people. She tried to go to church. Everyone would know to have nothing to do with her. And in fact, she was ostracized by the town folk and wore this letter faithfully. I think of that story when I think of Rahab. Rahab, similarly, was a scarlet woman. She was marked by her community as an especially terrible sinner. Do you note that every time in the Old Testament, and sometimes in the New Testament, where we read her name, it's never Rahab, the wife of Salmon, or Rahab, the daughter so-and-so. It's Rahab, the harlot. That's what people called her. They said, there she goes, Rahab, the harlot. She was thought to be the foulest of sinners. But God redeemed her. You remember what the word redeemed means? It means to buy back. The image there is of the atonement. And when we talk about the atoning work of Christ, we can look at it from a lot of perspectives. But one of the perspectives I love to think about the atonement is Him redeeming the lost. And the image there is that Jesus goes to the marketplace, the agora in the Greek. But He's not there to buy cantaloupes. Not there to, to trade for pottery. He goes to the marketplace of sin where slaves are chained hand and foot. 
And the image there is that we were slaves of our own sinfulness, in bondage to sin. And he applied his blood, which was the only price that could be paid to set us free. And he unchains us from our sin and our guilt, and he sets us free, but not free to sin more, free to serve for the first time in our life. Free to obey. That's what it means to be redeemed. And remember what I said, God doesn't have to have his arm twist as if we could to force him into a theological corner to begrudgingly say, okay, I'll save this one. No, he delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing mercy to the worst of sinners. God redeemed her, he forgave her, and he made her name, which was a byword for sin, to be blessed for 2,000 years. Blessed not only because she saved the spies, she did, not only because she was forgiven, but blessed so that she got to be an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great, great grandmother of King David was a former prostitute. Let us never forget it. Second verse of that great hymn goes like this. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. Even more than Hester Prim could hide the scarlet letter on her blouse. We can't hide the stain of sin from God that is upon every human being. What can avail to wash it away? Out of despair, she is saying, what can cleanse me from this sin? And then she says, look, there is flowing a crimson, which means red, tide. Don't, don't, don't forget, that was a scarlet rope that hung out. Remember I said we've got to be careful about allegorizing, but this one's a slam dunk, right? Remember that the night that the Hebrew children left Egypt, God told them to apply the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and lintel of the house, which obviously is red. And wherever the blood was applied, death did not visit. But wherever the blood was applied, um, they, they lived. They were saved. And, and here's a picture. This woman puts a red rope. And the soldiers are told, where you see that red rope, let them live. That's obviously, isn't it, a foreshadowing of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. That, that whoever has the blood of the Lord Jesus applied to their sins will live. They'll be forgiven. There'll be trophies of His grace. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. The only hope, she says, of having your sins forgiven is the blood of Jesus applied to them. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Now that's the invitation that preachers have been making to sinners for 2,000 years. The grace is available. Christ has died. He's done everything that is necessary for your sins to be forgiven and the relationship with your creator to be restored. And it's my belief that that whole city of Jericho could have been spared if they'd all come out and repented but only one did. That person was spared. All who call upon the name of the Lord, the scripture says, will be saved. What about you? Maybe you came in here and just weighted down with the burden of sin. And you want to be made right with God, but you didn't know how. Now you do. First of all, it begins where 
Rahab did. You, you have to believe the things the Bible says about God is true. He is your creator, He's your sustainer, but He's also your Savior. He has made a way for you to be made right with Him. You also have to believe what the Bible says about you is true, that you're a sinner and you fall short of God's glory. And that there's no way for you to, to bridge that gulf between you and God. And so He did it for you. John 3.16, you remember that one. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. They'd be spared like Rahab was. They'd have everlasting life, Jesus says. If you're here today, no matter what you've done or where you've been, the grace of God is greater than your sins. Turn from your sins. Run to Jesus. Believe in Him. Follow Him. Submit to Him the rest of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Rahab. It's exciting. And it's full of intrigue and drama and mystery. Uh, but what's amazing still, it's true. Father, what's amazing is that you take someone as sinful as she was, and you forgave her sin, and you gave her a reason for living. And you included her in your eternal redemptive plan. And Father, I, I must believe in a, a room filled with as many people as this one is that not everyone here knows you as Lord and Savior. And maybe there's some in this room who doubt that they are savable. Maybe they think the gospel is for clean-cut people or people whose parents are still together or people who don't have a prison record. And yet you clearly say, whoever calls upon your name will be saved. Murderers, thieves, adulterers, prostitutes, liars. Such are some of us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you delight in giving grace. And I pray you would save some here today through Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.